I'm turning this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And our focus this morning will be on the final verse of 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5. The Apostle writes, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And our subject this morning is the imputation of Christ, the imputation of Christ. For uh, those of you who've been here over the past few weeks, we've been looking at these unsearchable riches of Christ, and we've been considering some of these doctrines concerning Christ, our great Saviour and our great King. For example, we've looked at the deity of Christ, that he is truly God. We've considered something of the humanity of Christ, that he has become flesh and that he dwelt among us. We looked at the sinlessness of Christ, and uh, we thought of that great truth, didn't we, that Christ is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and he's been made higher than the heavens. And then last week we were thinking about the substitution of Christ. We were thinking, weren't we, that the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for us. Not merely that he died for our benefits, but that he really and actually stood in our place, that he became our substitute. And this morning, as we turn to this verse here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, this perhaps very familiar verse to some of us, we see that the apostle here brings together a number of these subjects that we've already covered. He mentions in this verse the sinlessness of Christ. You notice that in the middle of the verse, it tells us that he had made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Christ was innocent. Christ was sinless. There was never any sin in the Lord Jesus Christ. He had no sin of his own. The Lord Jesus Christ, you remember, even said this in John chapter 8 and verse 46. He said, which of you convinceth me of sin? Of course, Peter tells us that that Christ did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. He was, to put it in a sense, in the positive way, he was pure, he was righteous. And so here in this this verse, we have further proof of the sinlessness of our Saviour. But Paul also brings into this verse here the substitution of our Saviour that we were thinking of last week. He says, he hath made him to be sin for us. And here again we see this great subject again that Christ's work at Calvary was substitutionary, it was in our place, it was vicarious. But this verse then also introduces us to another aspect of the work of Christ, because it brings us before us this great theme of the imputation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's this that I want us to focus on this morning, focus our minds as we look at this verse together. And I want us to see three things as we think about this subject and as we consider this verse this morning. And the first thing that I want to draw your attention to in this verse is a shocking statement, a very shocking statement. You notice how Paul begins this verse. It's actually, it's very striking, it's very, it's very shocking. If, if the Apostle Paul had not written these words down in this way, I, under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, I... I doubt whether anyone would have been so bold as to write these words. They're so assertive. 
And it's here that we see this first aspect of the imputation of Christ, because just look with me what Paul says here. He says, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Paul says that Christ, who is, who is sinless, Christ, who is holy, Christ, who is innocent, Christ, who is righteous, he was made sin. He was made sin for us. Now, a few weeks ago, as I said, we focused on this purity of Christ and we looked very carefully, didn't we, how Christ in every aspect of his life was spotless. As we thought about those words in in Hebrews 7, that wonderful fivefold description of the Saviour. We noted that he was pure in his relationship to God. We saw also how he was pure in all his relationships with men. We noted how he was the only man since Adam who was born with this individual purity and moral excellency. Christ inwardly was pure. There was no trace of Adam's sin in the Redeemer, was there? He was not shapen in iniquity. Christ could not say like David, in sin did my mother conceive me. Never did he say like Paul, O wretched man that I am, because he was sinless. We thought also how if Christ was pure in all his dealings with people, he was separate from sinners. And we thought about how he's now exalted and glorified and he sits enthroned in that place of purity, that place where there is no sin. And yet here in this verse before us, Paul tells us there was a moment in history when Christ, this same sinless, righteous Christ, was made sin. And so friends, this morning, do we see how shocking a statement this is? That God the Father made Christ, his son, to be sin. Now, we have to be very careful with our language as we deal with this this morning. We have to note how Paul puts it here to prevent ourselves falling into error. Because Paul doesn't say here that Christ was made a sinner. He doesn't say that. Nor does he say that Christ was a sinner. No, he makes it very clear, doesn't he, that he knew no sin. He wasn't a sinner. Nor does Paul say here that Christ committed a sin. No, you see, Christ is the Holy Son of God. He could not sin. He was impeccable. Try as Satan did to tempt the Lord Jesus Christ and trick Christ and lure Christ into iniquity. Satan failed. Forty days in the wilderness of the most trying temptations and yet Christ resisted the devil and the devil eventually fled from him. And of course, Satan tested Jesus Christ all the way through his life. But especially he tried and tested him when he was hanging there upon the cross at Calvary. You see, when Christ was at his, uh, we could say in his human nature, was at his weakest point, he tempted him and he tried him. He sought with every tactic to get Christ to come down from the cross. But Satan failed. And Christ was victorious, wasn't he, on Calvary. Christ never once sinned. But Paul says here in this verse that Christ, while he was not a sinner, and while Christ never committed a sin, there was a moment when God the Father made him to be sin. And so the logical question that follows is, when? When was Christ made sin? When did this moment take place? And the obvious answer to that question is that when Christ was crucified at Calvary, that's when he was made sin. In those hours of darkness, you know, when the the sun was blackened and and the day turned into night. In those moments when, when Christ cried, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? When in his agony, you remember how he said, I thirst. 
And those words, they they give us an awful insight into all that he was enduring as he was suffering hell. It was then that the Son of God was made sin. Now some commentators like to read this verse in a slightly different way, in a very helpful way. And they read it like this. For he hath made him to be a sin offering for us. Matthew Henry, for example, he puts this particular slant on this verse and other commentators do so. And they do so to highlight that it was at the cross that Christ was being offered up. And he was being offered up as that one great sacrifice for sin. Now, as a congregation, we thought about this a lot, didn't we, a few months ago when we considered the offerings in Leviticus, how all the offerings were pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ and his perfect sacrifice. You may recall that we looked at the sin offering and we saw something of how revolting that offering was, how the majority of that animal with all its dung and the skin of the animal and so on, it was carted through the streets of Jerusalem and it was taken outside the city walls to be burnt. And it was burnt upon the ground. It was not worthy of being placed upon the altar of God. And so it was burnt upon the cursed earth. And it was was taken away. It was symbolizing that separation from God. That God and sin could not be together. And Paul says to us here in this shocking statement, Our Saviour became the very embodiment of that offering. He was made sin And he offered himself up for us. That's why we read Isaiah chapter 53 again this morning. You know, there couldn't be a clearer chapter that reveals this great doctrine of Christ being made sin for us. In all the Bible, it points to how Christ was bearing the sins of his people. You think about in that chapter how it tells us in in verse 5 how he was wounded for our transgressions. How he was bruised for our iniquities. Verse 6, it tells us that the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 10 says, it pleased the Lord to bruise him, he hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. Look at verse 11, you could say the same thing. It tells us that he shall bear their iniquities. In verse 12, this, the great summary of the whole chapter, it tells us that he was numbered with the transgressors and he bare the sin of many. Friends, this morning it couldn't be any clearer what Paul is saying in this shocking statement that Christ, who is not a sinner, who had no sin, who knew no sin, that he was made sin at the cross. It was there that the the sins of his people were imputed, were given, as it were, to him. They were reckoned to his accounts. That God in his sovereign justice made our guilt, our sin, really Christ's. Remember how Peter puts it, that Christ, he bare our sins in his own body on the tree. He took our guilt He took our sin, he took our shame, he even took the penalty that was due for our sins. Our sin deserves hell, it deserves death, but Christ died for our sins. Paul says that, doesn't he, in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That's why the hymn writer says those wonderful words, he took my sins and my sorrows, he made them his very own. 
and bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. And so Paul in this shocking statement shows us Christ was made sin for us. Our sin has been imputed to the Saviour. It's been reckoned to his account. We were in debt, but it's been given to him. And he is the one who comes and he pays the price of the great debt of all our sin. But there's a second thing that we need to notice in this text as we think about the imputation of Christ. And as we think about this verse, we see also a serious implication. A serious implication. Now, an implication is something that can be obviously deduced, but it might not be explicitly stated. When you imply something, you suggest something, but you don't necessarily actually say it directly. And Paul, in this verse before us, he implies a truth without actually saying it directly. Just look with me again at this verse in front of us, verse 21. He says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Paul makes a contrast between us and Christ, and he tells us that Christ was made sin who knew no sin. And then he immediately speaks about us being made the righteousness of God. And the implication that Paul says in this verse is that we didn't know any righteousness. And some people like to read this verse in that way. Let me read it in that way. It says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we who knew no righteousness might be made the righteousness of God in him. Do you you see what Paul is saying there? Do you see what he's implying there? Paul is reminding us that we have no righteousness of our own. There is none righteous, as he says in Romans. No, not one. Now, I say this carefully. We're not just sinners. We are. We're sinners. Of course, that's something incredibly serious. But we're not just sinners because Paul goes much further than that. Because on the opposite side, not only are we, in a sense, sinners, but we have no righteousness. And so Christ died for our sins. Our sins have been imputed to Christ. He's borne them. And that's the problem, as it were, dealt with. But we have another problem because we don't have a righteousness. And that's what we need. We need righteousness if we're going to enter heaven. You see, heaven requires not just a lack or an absence of sin, but it needs a positive holiness. We need to be righteous. The Lord is righteous, and this is what he demands. He demands nothing less than righteousness from us. Remember what the Lord Jesus Christ said, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. We need a righteousness if we're going to get into heaven. In Romans 6 verse 20, the apostle says that when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. In other words, while you were under, the, under sin and under Satan, you had no righteousness of your own. There was nothing that you could do. And we thought, didn't we, just a moment ago with the boys and girls, how Isaiah tells us in that chapter 64 and verse 6 that we're all as an unclean thing, that our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. What we may have thought was good, what we may think is worthy before God, what we think might be worthy of praise and delight in the sight of God, it's filthy rags. 
The passage that we read from a moment ago in Romans 5 makes it abundantly clear over and over again that by Adam's transgression, death and condemnation and judgment fell upon all men. All were unrighteous and all were damned. And so it leaves us in this great dilemma. We need righteousness. And there's only two ways of getting righteousness, isn't there? We must either obtain it for ourselves by living a perfect life, by following God's law consistently, perfectly, all the days of our life. Or we must have this righteousness given to us by someone else. And it has to be given to us by someone else who is perfect, someone who is righteous. It has to be a perfect righteousness. There can't be any flaws in it. There can't be any holes in this garment. There can't be any blemishes. God demands absolute purity. Now the first method that we just mentioned, obtaining a righteousness by ourselves, well we've already failed, haven't we? We've already sinned, we've already broken God's law, we're unrighteous. And so that leaves us only with this second option. And the question that we then ask is, could anyone ever provide us with such a righteousness? Is there such a righteousness that we could obtain? And of course the answer to that question is seen in our text this morning. Yes, it's obtained only through Jesus Christ. And this leads us on to our third point this morning, which is the sweet exchange. We've seen this shocking statement at the beginning of the verse. We've seen this serious implication that we have no righteousness of our own. But then we see this wonderful sweet exchange. Martin Luther used to refer to this verse in this way. He used to call it the sweet exchange, this glorious exchange. You see, not only do we see our sin and guilt imputed to Christ, but at the end of the verse, we see that his righteousness is imputed to us. Notice what it says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Friends, this morning, do you, do you hear this? Christ was made sin, but we are now made the righteousness of God. This wonderful exchange has taken place. We no longer stand in our filthy rags which smell and repulse the Lord. Instead, we're dressed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The passage that we read in Romans 5 spoke of the righteousness being a gift. It's given by God. It's free. It's out of the love and the kindness and the mercy of God's. Romans 5.18 said that therefore as by the offence of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. You see, we were in Adam and we've died, judgment fell upon us, but now Christ has procured this wonderful righteousness, this wonderful gift that he gives Christ lived, didn't he, that righteous, that perfect life. He obeyed God's law in every aspect. His life was one of continual obedience to his heavenly Father. And now that righteousness, that life of pure obedience is given to us. And the question we ask is, well, does everyone have this gift? Does everyone walk around clothed in this righteousness? Well, look back at what our text says. It says that we've been made the righteousness of God in him. It's in him that we have this righteousness. We have to be in Christ. We have to be in union with him by faith. 
We have to be those who are trusting in him in order to have this righteousness, in order to have this wonderful, sweet, this glorious exchange where our sin is imputed to Christ and his righteousness is imputed to us. And when that happens, you see, when you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's then that God, he looks at you as in Christ. He sees you as being in Christ. He doesn't see you in all your sin and, and all your guilt and all your, your shame. He doesn't see those filthy rags as we were, we were saying a moment ago. But he sees Christ. And he sees his purity and he sees his righteousness. You see, even now, believer, as God looks down upon you, he doesn't see all the sin of the past week, but he sees Christ. Yes, we were once clothed in these rags, but when we trusted in Christ, the rags came off, the rags disappeared. We've been clothed with those garments of salvation. We've been robed and covered with that righteousness. And so now we can say, Jehovah, Sikenu, the Lord is my righteousness. Paul writing in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, he tells us that, he, that Christ Jesus has been made unto us righteousness. So I no longer stand before a holy God dressed like Joshua. Do you remember in the book of Zechariah, Joshua the high priest in Zechariah chapter 3, he was clothed in filthy garments and he was there before the Lord. But the Lord came along and he took away those filthy garments and he gave him new clothes, righteous clothes. And believers here this morning, we have a change of clothes. We're dressed in this beautiful robe of Christ, pure and perfect righteousness. And we sung it earlier on, didn't we? It's a righteousness that never loses its hue. It's a righteousness that never gets a spot in it. It's a righteousness that is pure. This garment never gets old. And believers, this morning, this is a wonderful truth. Because it has important consequences for our assurance. You know, sometimes as believers we can be constantly dissecting our faith, can't we? Wondering, you know, have I really believed enough? Or have I felt enough? Have I experienced enough? Have I done enough? Have I prayed enough? Have I read my Bible enough? And we can be constantly, as it were, trying to dissect our faith and, and gain assurance. And when we start dissecting our faith, such thoughts can, can lead to us doubting our faith. We can begin to wonder, you know, am I saved or am I not? And it starts to destroy our, our assurance in God. But when we think about this sweet exchange where my sin has been imputed to Christ and his perfect righteousness has been imputed to me, this is the solid foundation that we need. You see, we can be assured, can't we, that when we stand before God, that we stand no longer in our sin, but we stand before the Lord in the righteousness of Christ. This is the foundation. When I stand before him, it's as if I personally had offered the perfect obedience, because I'm in him. I don't have to do anything to gain acceptance with God. It's all been done by Christ. It's not how many times you pray. It's not how many times you come and do penance. It's not how many times you read your Bible. It's because of Christ. And so we have to praise God this morning. Our righteousness is in Christ. It's not in ourselves. It's not because of the things that we do. No, it's all because of Christ. But there is something else that we could say as we come to a conclusion this morning. And that is that this righteousness of Christ is the only righteousness that will get a man into heaven. 
We said earlier that we're sinners. There's nothing that we can do. There's nothing that we can ever obtain or or purchase in order to get Christ, to get God's favour. You can try, can't you, and win God's favour with all your good works, but they're filthy rags as we've already seen. You can live the best life that you can. You can go to church. You can do all of these religious things, but it's filthy rags. Friends, this morning, I want you you to grasp this, that no action of yours will ever save you. Nothing that you ever do will ever obtain a righteousness good enough for God. So Paul reminds us in this verse that it's only by faith in Christ that we can secure this robe of righteousness. The apostle said that this righteousness is to everyone that believeth. He also said in Philippians that he was found in Christ not having his own righteousness which is of the law but it was that which was through the faith of Christ. And so friends this morning if you're trying to climb as it were the rungs of the ladder to heaven through your good works let me tell you you will never succeed. It's only through faith in Christ. When you come you you realise your sin imputed to Christ. His righteousness Imputed to you. And I trust that all of us this morning would be clothed in that righteousness. The righteousness which is of God by faith.